Thank you, Brother Sid. I appreciate that. If you'll make your way to John chapter uh, number 10 tonight, the Gospel of John and chapter number 10. It's good to be here tonight. I know Wednesdays are usually hectic and, uh, you know, it's everything you can do just to come to church and be here and, and, and engaged. And so uh, I'll, I'll give you two things. Number one is I've never been accused of being a long-winded preacher. Number two is this is one of my longer messages. So, I don't know what you're going to take from that, uh, but uh, the first time I preached this, I think it was around 30, 35 minutes, so maybe that'll be a blessing to you, I don't know. If nothing else is, hopefully that is. So, John chapter 10, uh, we're going to be in the latter half of the, uh, of the book, we're not going to go there, or the latter half of the chapter uh, tonight, we're not going to go there just quite yet, uh, but we'll be there here in a second. So there was a teacher uh, uh, one Sunday that stood before his Sunday school class. And, and, and as he sat there and stood there, and he, he looked at a Sunday school class, and he, he asked them this question. He asked them, why do you think God saved us? Why do you think God saved us? And at that question, uh, several adults in the room shot their hands up in the air, waiting anxiously to, uh, to answer this question, to give their answer, to have their voices heard. And as you might expect, one of the men raised his hand and he said, well, God wants us to show his love. And as he, another said that he, wants, he saved us so we would forgive, which is true. And still another said he saved us so we could be his hands and his feet. All of which are very true things. And, and the Sunday school teacher listened as each and every one of the, the, the members there gave their answers. And at the end of it, he, he, when they were done, he responded with one short answer. He said, friends, everything you have said has been true, but all of them have missed the heart of the matter. God saved us to make us more like Him. God saved us to sanctify us. So that's the title of our message tonight, is Saved to be Sanctified, and that's what we're going to talk about, and we're going to develop that thought throughout this message tonight, and I, I pray it's a blessing to you, but for now I want to draw your attention to the latter half of John chapter 10, and, the, and, and the la uh, this is the last time, uh, to give you a little setting, give you a little... Uh, um, bearings here where we are in the chapter uh, in the book of John. This is the last time that Jesus will openly debate with the Pharisees. Actually, it's the last time he really talks publicly before he stands before the high priest. And he is in the middle of the, he is in the temple. And, and, and uh, apart from all that, six of his seven miracles, six of his seven signs that are recorded in the gospel of John have been done. And yet still many of the Jews who have heard, who have listened, and who have seen what he has done have chosen not to believe in his name. Now the question is, would this time be any different as Jesus taught these people? Well, let's read here. John chapter 10, verses 22, and then we're going to read down through verse number 39. The Bible says, And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in, the, and walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. 
The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30 says, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do ye stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, Ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent him into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. So let's examine this event tonight, and in a timely manner, I promise you it will be, but we're going to examine this event bit by bit, starting with the beginning. So Jesus here, he, he was walking in Solomon's porch in the temple during the feast of the dedication, and he was surrounded by the Jews here. So this event that we read here, this historical event that took place, uh, that, that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees, takes place during a celebration that, we are record, that is recorded here as the feast of the celebration, or the feast of dedication, I'm sorry. But what is the Feast of Dedication? Well, you can scour the Old Testament, but the Feast of the, de feast of the Dedication was not a feast established in the Old Testament. It was not a feast instituted in the Old Testament. See, it is a celebration uh, to memorialize the rededication and cleansing of the temple in 164 B.C. under a man named Judas Maccabeus, uh, following its desecration by the Syrian forces. So the celebration was, uh, was, was, was symbolized uh, by, by, by lights, by, by, by many, many lights being lit and, and, and candles and things. From thus it gets its name, its name the Festival of Lights. However, it is more po uh, popularly known today as Hanukkah. So this takes place during the time of Hanukkah. And the purpose of these lights, the purpose of the lights during the Festival of Lights is to look forward to the Messiah which this man named Judas Maccabeus thought would lead Israel into, uh, into, uh, into national independence. They thought that the Messiah was going to lead them as a nation out of bondage to Rome, out of, out of, their hand, out of the Roman emperor's hand. And so that's why, that's why many uh, Jews thought that, because it was popular, made popular by Judas Maccabeus. Now this encounter takes place in Solomon's porch in the temple. Now obviously we know Solomon had built a temple, but this temple that they are in was Herod's temple, the second temple. 
Now, Solomon's porch in this temple was basically a, a large breezeway with, with, with the roof and columns on the sides so that it, it was just a place to walk through and it was around the temple and, and so people would walk through it. And so, so here you have Jesus who is walking through this, uh, through these, this porch and as he's walking, minding his own business, the Pharisees come around Jesus and they corner him and he has nowhere to go. He has nowhere uh, to be. He... he, he, he he is going to have to answer their questions, and they want him to. They want to trap Jesus. And so these Pharisees proceed to ask Jesus a question. The Jews ask that Jesus tell them plainly whether he was the Christ, and he tells them that they were not of his sheep. Well, see, the Jews surround Jesus, and they pointedly ask him in verse 24, to tell them plainly whether or not he was the Messiah. Now, I don't know how close they were to Jesus, but I can tell you what, I would have gotten a little claustrophobic with all these Jews around me, with all these people around me, and they asked him, tell us plainly whether thou art the Christ. Now, that word plainly is really interesting because in the, in the Greek word, it means to speak with boldness. Now, that's ironic to me because whenever you read the Gospels, is there ever a time that Jesus doesn't speak with boldness? And so, Jesus, uh, so these Jews say, tell us boldly whether thou art the Christ. Tell us plainly whether thou art the Christ. And there is the Jews' question, but let's see how Jesus answers it. And he an his answer is a tricky one because he says in verse 25, I told you and you believe not. Now that's tricky because if you examine the Gospel of John, Jesus never in the Gospel of John uh, comes out and specifically says, I am the Christ. But he just told them that he was the Christ, that he had told them that he was the Christ. So how in the world could Jesus be honest uh, by telling them that he had told them that he was the Christ when he had never specifically stated that? Well, the solution to that is pretty simple because in John's gospel, the miracles proved that he was the Christ. Anyone who looked at Jesus and looked at what he did and looked at how he performed those miracles could see if they looked beyond them that he was Jesus Christ. The point of those miracles was so they could see that he was not a mere man, that he was not just somebody uh, that had come, but that he was the Son of God, the promised Messiah. He told them to believe for the very work's sake. But these Jews, these Pharisees, could not see past the works and words of Christ to what they really meant, which is pretty, it was pretty crazy to me because if I saw somebody uh, divide uh, loaves, a little bit of loaf and a little bit of fish and feed more than 5,000 people, I'd immediately think they were the Son of God. But they chose not to believe in them. And Jesus lays out their plain reason for not believing in verse 26 because they were not of his flock. He says, ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. Now, we didn't talk about this, and for, for sake of time, we're not going to go back and read it, but this is an echo back to earlier in chapter 10 where Jesus talks about him being the good shepherd and us being his sheep, and I'm thankful that Christ is the good shepherd. I'm thankful he leads us even when we don't want to be led. And so he continues this analogy in verse 27 when he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they Follow me. Christ's sheep 
hear His voice. If you're a Christian, you are going to hear Christ's voice. Christ's sheep hear His voice, meaning they saw the wonders, they saw His teachings, they saw who He was, and they recognized that Jesus was no mere person, but that He was the Messiah. He was the promised Son of God. But not only that, not only do, does, not only do we as, as, as His sheep hear His voice, but He knows us. He knows His sheep. Jesus knows His sheep, and, and His sheep know Him and, and follow Him. In other words, sheep have a relationship with their shepherd. And I wish we could spend more time here because it's a great study, but if you look at the relationship between, uh, the, the physical relationship between sheep and shepherd, it's a crazy, uh, intimate relationship. It's so close. It's such a, uh, an amazing bond. We don't have time to go into that. Uh, but sheep have a relationship with their shepherd. But earlier, earlier when he talked about the sheep and the shepherd, he was talking about, he was talking about security. He was talking about uh, security in the sheepfold and security when following the shepherd in the pasture. But here, Jesus still talks about security, but, he is talking, uh, or he, but here he talks about the sheep having eternal life. You see, the sheep of Jesus have eternal life. And that was the ultimate mission of Christ, was to bring eternal life to a lost and dying world. Now really think about the amazing thought that we're considering here. Christians never have to worry about their eternal destination after salvation. Like, think about that. After you believe on Jesus, you never have to wake up one more day and say, you know what, if something were to happen right now, I don't know what's going to happen to me. And, 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 and truthfully, church, if God never blessed us one more iota, that would be blessing enough. To know that I can wake up every day knowing that if I don't, if I don't make it through the day, I'm going to end the day with him. He says in verse 28, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Man. We have the blessed assurance that no man can take us from the hand of the Son of God. And such an amazing promise that I don't have to worry about my eternal security. But there's a note of warning with this. We must not let this amazing promise be abused. You see, eternal security does not give the Christian the right to spit in the face of God with an unrighteous life. It does not give us license to sin. Just because my wife, just because Kara loves me unconditionally, does not mean that I get the right to abuse that love. It actually means the opposite. It means I should cherish that love. It means I should respect that love. It means I should reverence that love because that love is special. The same is true with our salvation. Just because we can't lose it doesn't mean we abuse it. Then we have Christ's statement in verse 30. He says, I and my Father are one. And he continues to, uh, to elaborate on this eternal security concept and he says that if you think, you know, if, you, if for some odd reason you think that I'm not strong enough to keep you, I and my Father are one. So not only do you have security in my hand, but you have security in my Father as well. You have the double security of the Father and the Son. Basically what he's saying is, you can't get out of salvation whether you want to or not. Once you're saved, you're always saved. That is what he is telling us. 
But this final, sta- this final sentence in verse 30, I and my Father one, of Jesus claiming to be one with his Father, listen, it was the straw that finally broke the camel's back for these Pharisees. They had had enough, they had heard enough, they had done enough, it was time for Jesus to be stopped once and for all. And so these Jews respond to Jesus' statement that he is one with the Father. Guess what? They don't say, wow, you really are one with the Father. No, they reach down and they pick up stones to stone Jesus for blasphemy. Obviously, the statement didn't sit well with the, with the Jews here. And once again, it causes hostility between Christ and these, and these religious leaders. So I'm going to give the Jews, I'm really hard on the Jews here in, in, in Jesus' day, but I'm going to give them consistency. I'm going to give them credit for some consistency here, because if you read back the last few chapters, they are consistent with what they want. And the one thing that they want is Jesus to be dead. The last few chapters. They want Jesus to be dead for the simple claim, uh, for the simple claim that he was God. And obviously for a mere man to say that he was God would be blasphemy. Would be, would be, would be uh, what, exactly what the Jews accused Jesus of doing. But there was just one problem. Jesus wasn't just a mere man. And he proved that on this occasion, or he proved that in this book, specifically six separate times. The only, time, the only uh, miracle we have yet to witness in the book of John is the raising of Lazarus. And six times Jesus proved to these Jews, I am the Son of God. I am not a mere person. I am not a mere mortal. I am the Son of God, the Messiah here. So these next few verses, we're going to dig into them, but... I want to be honest with you, they can be quite confusing when you read them on the surface, or at least they were to me when I first read them. So just hang with me, and I'm going to explain them, and hopefully we'll be able to draw something out of this tonight. See, Jesus, after this claim of blasphemy by the, by the Jews, Jesus referred to the Scriptures to show that his claims weren't blasphemous. I'm telling you, Jesus, Jesus was the ultimate in comebacks. I mean, Jesus knew exactly how to come back at people. And so, obviously, he, he not only denies their charge of blasphemy, but he, he, he turns, he turns their, their accusation back on these Jews, and he turns it around on them and charges them to provide some rationale from the, uh, for the Scripture using the word God when it merely referred to human beings. Well, what am I talking about? Well, let's read verses 34 and 35. It says here, Jesus answered them, obviously talking about the Jews, Is it not written in your law, which that would mean the scriptures, I said, ye are gods. So Jesus says here, is it not written in the scriptures, ye are gods. If he called them, talking about men, uh, gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, Jesus is saying, if the infallible word of God called men gods, why are you saying that I can't call men gods? What's the problem with me doing it? Okay? The question then becomes, what scripture is Jesus talking about? Where in the world in the Old Testament does it talk about men being gods? Well, he's probably referring to Psalm 82 when the psalmist calls men gods twice. And so... We can look at that, and, 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 and there can be many questions that arise in our minds when we think about that, uh, when, we, when we look at such a portion of Scripture. But before we go down a rabbit trail of exactly what does Jesus mean here, I want you to remember the overarching theme here. Why did Jesus use this question? Why did Jesus ask this question? Jesus asked this question because he knew 
Whatever answer he received would not be enough for the Jews to defend their charge of blasphemy. In other words, Jesus was setting a trap for these Jews to help them see how, how futile their questions were. How, how, how much time they were wasting here. How their, 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 their attacks had no bearing on him. So after having pointed out that their scripture calls fallible men gods, Jesus then says that he is the one the Father hath sanctified. In other words, sanctified here means to be set apart. And Jesus certainly was set apart by God for a particular purpose, the purpose of dying on the cross. But sanctified also means holiness. And holiness is an undeniable attribute of God. Everything that belongs to God should radiate holiness. We should radiate holiness in all that we do, all that we say, all that we watch, uh, uh, all, everywhere we go, everything that we do, everything that we listen to should radiate holiness. You see, holiness should define the people of God in everything we do because it defines God in everything He does. But we're going to talk about that more in a moment. Therefore, if Jesus, let's talk about this, let's, let's go back to our scripture for a second. If Jesus had been sent and sanctified by God to call himself the Son of God, we was hardly blasphemous because there was never a more holy person to walk the face of the earth. The problem was not that his statement was false. The problem was that they didn't believe him. Because of that, in verse 34, he says, If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. Time and time again, Jesus pointed believer, unbelievers to his works to prove that he was the Son of God. And time and time again, they chose to believe that he was not the Son of God. You see, the goal of the gospel is to believe without seeing, but Jesus provided some, something, these, uh, something these people could see so that they could believe, but they still chose not to believe. They still chose to remain in darkness and reject him. And this time, this time right here, this teaching that Jesus was having this, with, the, with these men, it was not going to be any different. Because the end result was, once again, that these Jews wanted to take Jesus, but he escaped. Now when you read this passage, I'll be honest with you, it seems like it's all over the place. It, it's really, really, really hard to nail down one particular thing. It's really hard to gather a glimpse into the redeeming nature of God on the surface of this passage. But if you look closer, you'll find and you'll see something pretty amazing. Because throughout chapter 10, we talked about it earlier, but throughout chapter 10, we see Jesus bringing himself, as, uh, bringing himself up as the good shepherd. Uh, in the first part of chapter 10, he brought himself up as the good shepherd, and we as his sheep, uh, and we should follow him because he is the sacrifice for our souls. That's one of the reasons we should follow Jesus as, as our good shepherd. But here in the, in the second half of John chapter 10, we see the second reason that we should follow Jesus as our good shepherd. We can come to this conclusion. Christ should be our shepherd because he leads us to holiness. But why is holiness so important? Well, holiness should be a part of everything that belongs to God because holiness is the defining attribute of God. So if you read your Bible... 
If you, if you did a study on this and you, 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 took, you went into your, word pro, uh, your Bible program and you typed in the word holy, the word holy appears 611 times in the Bible. The word holiness appears 43 times in the Bible. That those are the th- those are so for for a total of 644 times in the Bible that the word holiness is explicitly mentioned. Now, for reference, the word love in the Bible is used 310 times. Now, I don't want to read anything read into anything here tonight, but is it just a coincidence that being holy is emphasized twice as much in the Bible as being loving? So let's 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 think about this for a moment. Those who have been given rare glimpses of God have not been awestruck by His love, but rather they have, been, uh, they have been paralyzed by His holiness. One of the greatest things we see here is Isaiah. He has, God has created creatures to fly around the throne and to say three words over and over and over again. What are they? Holy, holy, holy. They, say, they, they lift up the holiness of God, and truthfully, God is love, and we should emphasize the love of God, but I think we also need to see that God will not do anything to sacrifice His holiness. Holy, being holy is a central part of who God is. Holiness is the defining attribute of God. God, will to show love, He will not sacrifice His holiness. To show His glory, He will not give up His holiness. To show mercy, He will not give up His holiness. Holiness is the defining attribute of God, and everything that belongs to God is holy. And since we belong to God, we are holy. So let's bring this to the passage we're considering tonight. Jesus said in this passage that those who are in the flock of God, meaning Christians, cannot be plucked out. We have been given eternal security. Death has no more victory. The grave has no more sting. And we can praise God for that. And I hope you do uh, every single day of your life. But just because we have the security of salvation does not mean we have the license to sin, to abuse God's grace. In fact, Paul addresses this very issue in Romans 6. In verses 1 and 2, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course. Now, what are the next two words he says? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Christian, you have not, you and I have not been saved to sin. We have been saved to be sanctified, to be holy, to be instruments of God's holiness. Because God is holy, we should desire to be holy. R.C. Sproul doesn't pull any punches when he talks about this topic in his book, Choosing My Religion. He says, if you don't delight in the fact that your, that your heavenly Father is holy, 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 then you are spiritually dead. You may be in a church, you may go to a Christian school, but if there is no delight in your soul for the holiness of God, You don't know God. You don't love God, and you're out of touch with God. You're asleep to His character. Wow. I tell you, when I first read that, I had to stop and pray. Because that is a convicting quote here. If I don't strive, if I'm not striving for the holiness of God, there is something wrong between me and God. 
Because we should strive every day to be holy as God is holy by following Christ our shepherd. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sit up here and say that it's super easy to to not abuse the grace of God. Because in my flesh, guess what I want to do? I want to abuse the grace of God. And Satan's really good by going around. He says, you know what? You got eternal security. So guess what? You can can go where you want. You can talk like you want. You can listen to what you want. You can act like you want. You can do whatever you want. Because at the end of the day, guess what? If you die, you're going to go to heaven anyway. Our flesh wants to abuse the grace of God. And that's just the fact of the matter. Our flesh wants to abuse what God has given us because we don't have to worry about the consequences, the, over, uh, the, 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 the eternal consequences, because we have eternal security. But there's a problem with this. And we see that problem in 2 Corinthians. Chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. You see, we Christians are new creatures with new desires after we're saved. And one of those desires should be for Christ, the shepherd, to lead us into holiness. But what is holiness? What is this great church word called holiness? Well, the answer is simple. Holiness is becoming more like God. So somebody asks you, what does being holy mean? Well, it means becoming more like God. It's simply what holiness is. And the only way we become more like God is to know more about God. And the primary way we know more about God is to read His Word and fellowship with Him through prayer. Listen, church, uh, the word holiness has gotten a bad rep because we think that, that, that holiness is, is putting, uh, putting a list of rules on a wall, and the more we do those rules, the holier we are at the end of the day. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is not some kind of, uh, of checkbox Christianity where we say, oh, did this today, oh, oh did, did this today, oh, did this today, oh, did this today. Didn't do that today. Sorry, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. That's not how holiness works. That's not how uh, Christianity was meant to work. You see, holiness is not a list of boxes. Holiness is a lifestyle. A lifestyle of wanting to be more like God. Little decisions, big decisions, every decision we make, wanting to draw closer to our Lord and Savior. Wanting to draw, draw closer to our Father. And in my experience, there are three main things you will find in the life of a person who desires to be holy. By no means is this an exhaustive list, but there are three main things you will always find. Number one is quality and consistent fellowship with God. Number two is a desire for the things of God. And number three is an aversion towards sin. So let's talk about these things. Number one, quality and consistent fellowship with God. To be like God, you must know God in His Word. Is that right? God has chosen to reveal Himself in this Word. Therefore, to know Him, we have to know this. To know Him, we must spend time in this. You see, the people in my life who, for lack of a better term, I, I don't want to put them on a pedestal, but for lack of a better term, I consider the holiest, the people who, 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 who are the holiest in, in that sense are, are the people who, who, takes, who take seriously their fellowship and their time with God. They don't just say, well, I, I, I got to spend time with God today. 
No, they put effort, they put time into it. They, they want to know more about God. So the very foundation of being more holy is spending time with God. Quality and consistent fellowship with God. Number two, the number two thing you're going to find in, in a person who desires to be holy is a desire for the things of God. People who desire to be holy don't have a nah, attitude when it comes to the things of God. It isn't, a, it isn't a go with the flow type of a thing. It isn't, well, if, if the wind blows this way, I'll go this way. But if the wind blows this way, I'll go this way. No, a person, a person who, who wants to be holy says, this is what God wants and this is what I'm going to do. They want to do the things of God. They have a desire to please God. They're consumed with the desire to please God. Wanting to be more like Him. Wanting to, uh, uh, to, to follow Him every step of the way. They have a desire for the things of God. They want to draw as close to Him as they possibly can. They prioritize those things in their life. They have a desire, a passionate desire for the things of God. They have a passionate desire for the things of God, much like I have a passionate desire for all things Oklahoma Sooners. If you know me, that's really funny. They have a desire for the things of God. And number three, they have an aversion to sin. Now if you notice, all of these things build on one another. At first you have the quality time with God. And then when you have the quality time with God, the quality fellowship with God, you're going to want to please God. You're going to have a desire for the things of God. You're going to want to put Him first in your life. You're going to want to prioritize His things in your life. And then as you begin to prioritize God in your life and you have a desire for the things of God, guess what? Number three, that's going to lead you to have an aversion to sin. You see, people who want to be holy don't, don't tote the line with sin. They don't try to see how close to the edge they can walk. They say, well, if this is the line, I'm going to be all the way back here. I don't even want to go near that line. I don't even want to be associated with that line. I don't even want to go around that line. I want to, I want to have an aversion towards sin. Because guess what? When you flirt the line with sin, sin will win every time. You are not smarter than sin. I am not smarter than sin. People who desire to be holy uh, have an aversion towards sin, first and foremost because they know that God hates sin. And they love God. Obviously, they still sin. We're all going to still sin until we see uh, Christ in glory, until we, until we go to heaven. But they don't consistently make the choice to have a lifestyle of sin. And there's a difference between occasionally sinning, between messing up, and consistently choosing to sin. Those people avoid that. Holy people, holy people want to be closer to God than they want to be to the world. That's a defi that is the defining characteristic of a holy person. He wants to be, they want to be closer to God than they want to be to the world. True, I love this quote, the true measure of spiritual growth is not how much you've gained in knowledge this past year, but how much you've grown in holiness. What a true statement that is. 
See, church, we can gain all, all kinds of spiritual, all kinds of head knowledge about what this word says, about what the Bible says, about all kinds of theology, about everything that, 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 that's in the word of God under the sun. We can gain all that knowledge. But if it never affects the way we live, what's the point? If today, May 15, 2019, we can't look back and say, or today on May 15, 2019, can we look back and say that I am more like God today than I was on January 1st, 2019? I'm not saying you're leaps and bounds above where you were on January 1st, but have you grown incrementally in, in your relationship with God? Do you desire more the things of God than you desired back then? And for those of us who want to overcomplicate things, it's me. John Brown has a great quote about that, about holiness. Holiness consists in thinking like God thinks and willing as God wills. You want to be holy? You're going to think like God thinks. And you're going to do what God does. There's not some great formula for holiness. There's not some great thing for holiness. There's not do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. It's simply, man, I'm going to think like God thinks and I'm going to do what God does. Now the question is, is that you? Is that me? Do you spend, do I spend consistently and quality time with God, quality fellowship with God? Do, do we desire, I mean passionately desire, I mean, I, mean, I mean above all things, do we passionately desire the things of God or does it have a, a mech, like a whatever kind of place in our lives? Do you try, do I try to avoid sin? Or, or do I try to tote the line as much as I can and see how close I can get to the line with sin without falling over the edge? If the answer to any one of those questions is no in our lives, can I encourage you to allow God to speak to your heart and to give you a desire to be holy as He is holy? Church, we have been saved to be sanctified. We have been saved to become more like Christ. But am I, are you doing that? Are we becoming more like Christ? 